0: Zechariah uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father, uh, his father and mother who bore him shall, will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet shall be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if anyone anyone asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I've received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will, turn my head, I will turn my hand against the little ones and the whole land declares the Lord. Two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Bo. <laughs> uh, boys and girls can head out to story keepers or to nursery. kids are heading out let me uh let me lead us in prayers as we ask god's help for our passage today let's pray heavenly father thank you for your word thank you that you uh by your spirit help us not only understand it but apply it see its relevance in our lives or we come uh, this morning as a congregation of people who are at different uh, points on the spectrum of our journey of faith some of us perhaps here are aren't not even sure we believe in you Others of us are seeking you. Others of us have been walking with you for many years. Some of us need encouragement today. Some of us need some challenge. You know exactly what each of us needs. And I pray, Lord, that through this passage, and the words that you give me to speak, that you indeed will meet each of us where we are in need today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I were to ask you of, uh, to think of one word that you associate with Easter, I wonder what that one word would be as Tara was trying to grapple with putting together PowerPoint slides this morning that we'll see a little later. She said stress, but uh, hopefully there are other words that come to your mind this morning. Uh, we might run the gamut all the way from bunnies and chocolate and eggs to hopefully Jesus, resurrection, new life. Or perhaps the word you would think of is hope. We long for hope at this season of the year because, frankly, hope seems generally in such short supply in our lives. As David French indeed wrote in his Sunday article this morning, Easter is everything, a day of hope in a season of grief when we talk about hope, of course, we need to define what we're talking about. In a letter to uh, Thomas More, the early 19th century English poet, Lord Byron wrote, but what is hope? Nothing but the paint on the face of existence. The least touch of truth rubs it off, and then we see what a hollow-cheeked harlot we have got hold of, end quote. Which being interpreted means, Byron was saying, hope is simply a form of wishful thinking. You might say, I hope the Phillies win the World Series this year. You might say that. I would say something different. Or you might say, I hope the weather is going to be warm and sunny for my day off this weekend, and so on. It's, it's more in the category of wishful thinking. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it's speaking of something much more robust. It understands that hope like faith, whatever it's hoping for, is only as good as its object. What ultimately matters is who you put your hope in. All through this sermon series in the book of Zechariah, I've referred to the prophet Zechariah as someone sent by God to bring comfort and hope uh, to the people of Jerusalem all the way back in the 6th century BC. Zechariah's audience was made up of God's people who had returned to the city of Jerusalem after 70 years in exile in Babylon. Things were not good for God's people when they came back uh, to Jerusalem. They were under foreign rule and occupation by the Persians. The temple had yet to be rebuilt, and there was famine in the land. And as a result, they were disillusioned. They were uh, disappointed. They were just fed up with life. They were in desperate need of hope. And hope really permeates the whole book of Zechariah. But the word hope... Only actually appears in one place. It came a few weeks ago as we were looking in chapter 9. Here is what God says right after he declares that the coming king is going to come into Jerusalem on a donkey, thereby announce himself as king. And then we read this, chapter 9, 11 to 12, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. That's a bit of a strange phrase, isn't it? Prisoners of hope. But God was saying that, that they had been prisoners in the pit of exile, but now God had intervened, he'd brought them back to Jerusalem, and now they were prisoners of hope on account of God's promises for what lay in the future. And we've seen these promises all the way through the book, but in, this, in the final section, really from chapters 9 to 14, those promises become particularly focused on one person. Hope rests with a person. In chapter 9, he was presented to us as the coming king, whose reign and rule will stretch from sea to sea. In chapters 10 and 11, we saw last week that he was presented as the good shepherd. Well, here in our final chapters, we discover one more massively important description of this individual upon whom all of Israel's hopes lay, all of our hopes hang. He's also the pierced messiah. Here's how we're going to frame Zechariah's message of hope in this final section, what we call the sermon in a sentence each week. The God of creation is going to bring a new creation through the pierced Messiah. We're going to break it down into three parts this morning. First part, we're thinking about salvation through judgment. Secondly, we're thinking about the stricken shepherd. Thirdly, we're thinking about the gospel according to Zechariah, Also so that we might understand better that the God of creation is going to bring a new creation through a pierced Messiah. So first of all, salvation through judgment. Let me begin this point by showing you how Zechariah frames this whole last section. Look first at how he begins in chapter 12, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Zechariah starts by pointing our attention all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and reminding us that the one whose oracle, whose word this is, is none other than the creator of the universe. And because God made it all, he made the universe, he made the world, he made us, he gets to be in charge and we would be foolish not to listen to what he says. He's sovereign. He's the creator and ruler over all. He reigns over all of creation. So that's how we start and then towards the end of this whole section in chapter 14 verse 9 we read this and the lord will be king over all the earth on that day the lord will be one and his name one so zachariah at this point looks to the future and declares that a day is coming when the, the lord will be king over all the earth which is really shorthand for that time in the future when all creation will be made new When all our tears will be wiped away, when there will be no more death or sickness or war or sadness or selfishness or greed or pride or any sin. That's what the world will look like when the Lord will be king. And You say, but didn't you just say that as the creator, God is already the ruler, the king over all creation? So which is it? Is it already or is it not yet? And how do you answer that? Well, the answer is, yes, God's the rightful ruler now. And he's in control of all things now, but this world is currently in rebellion to his rule. This world wants to do things its own way rather than God's way. But Zechariah is announcing that a day is coming when God will deal with that rebellion and he will establish his perfect, loving reign and rule in all its fullness. And if you read through all the chapters of this last section, I just had Bo read a section. If you read from 12 to 14, you find this phrase repeated over and over again, on that day. It actually occurs 17 times in these three chapters. That day would be the focal point for these prisoners of hope in the days of Zechariah because that would be the day when God will fulfill all his promises and particularly in the context of Zechariah his promise from chapter, chapter 1 that he will return fully to his people. And what would be the key to that day? Well, here at the start of chapter 12, Zechariah tells us the key is salvation through judgment. Look at verses 2 to 5, chapter 12. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, all who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, and for the sake of the house of Judah I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God." Now, that might seem to you like a pretty gruesome passage to be reading on Easter Sunday, but it actually teaches us something quite important for us to remember, which is taught all the way through the entire Bible, which is this, that God is the God who judges, and God is the God who saves, but particularly, specifically, he's the God who saves through judgment. We see this theme all the way through the Bible, this theme of salvation through judgment, but, but one clear place to go is back in the book of Genesis with Noah and the flood. Because if you think about the flood, the waters that judged the world were the same waters that actually saved Noah and his family. The floods that sank the majority lifted up Noah and his family. God saved through judgment. And he does that over and over again in the Bible. And here in Zechariah 12, God's promising to do it all over again. How will God save Jerusalem? Through the judgment of the opposing nations and notice that god's the key actor here to deal with the people who have opposed him and his people he says i'm about to make i will make i will strike so things seem to be going swimmingly at this point everything's on the ascendancy god's people will be saved those who oppose god and his people will be judged salvation through judgment only as we're about to discover this salvation through judgment is not going to come as they were expecting and that brings us to our second point the stricken shepherd in verse 10 there's this most unexpected revelation of how this promised salvation through judgment is going to come look at that verse he says and i will pour out on the house of david and the inhabitants of jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me on him who has been pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And the mention here about pouring out of a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy might seem to indicate a, a sudden change of direction, a change of subject, but I don't, I don't think that's the case here. The people still on view are those of the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They were mentioned just a few verses ago, verse 7. And the reference to someone who's been pierced suggests that the general context is still a battle, as we saw in the earlier verses, or at least the aftermath of a battle. And the picture that seems to unfold here is, is, is really sort of a victorious army suddenly plunged into grief by the realization that its supreme commander has been slain in battle. But what's even worse than that is it's not the enemy that has pierced the commander of this people. It's his own followers who are responsible for his death. And that brings us to the key issue of this passage and this last section, and perhaps the key issue of the message of the entire book of Zechariah. Who's this one who gets pierced in chapter 12, verse 10? Look again at the verse and and notice, this is the Lord God speaking. This is Yahweh speaking. In other words, the pierced one is none other than God himself. The victory that's going to usher in the kingdom of God, his perfect rule and reign, will not be won, we discover, without suffering. And none will suffer more keenly than God himself, the pierced God. And then by the time we get to chapter 13, the plot thickens. Look at chapter 13, verse 7. A O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now what's in the, in the spotlight is the instrument of piercing, the sword. And get this, it's being addressed by God. God's speaking to the sword. To do what? It's to come against, he says, my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Strike that shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Well, the shepherd's obviously a good shepherd. God calls him my shepherd. That is, he's approved by God. Someone who stands next to God or some translations put it close to God. But as the Lord God speaks of the shepherd as one who stands next to him, he clearly cannot be simply equated with God. So who is the shepherd who will be struck? Zachariah has prepared us well for this moment through everything that's led up to these chapters because there's only one person who can fit the bill here. He was described in chapters 3 and 6 as the branch or the shoot through whom God would remove the sin of the land on, on one day who would build the true temple and sit on its throne he was described in chapter 9 as the coming king the one who would ride into jerusalem on a donkey announcing his rule and his reign and in chapters 10 and 11 as we saw last week he would come as the good shepherd of god's people in other words the stricken shepherd was the promised messiah This was perhaps the most surprising and most profound and most precious announcement in the entire book of Zechariah that like the prophet Isaiah before him had said, Zechariah understood that the Messiah, the king, would have to suffer for our sin to be paid for, for severed relationships with God to be restored. And as if that wasn't shocking enough, here was the additional bombshell. This suffering of the Messiah would intentionally be brought about by God, it wasn't gonna be an accident. Prophet Isaiah delivered this news this way, we mentioned it last week, we all like sheep have gone astray, ba ba du ba ba, each of us have turned to his own way, ba ba du ba ba, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all singing ba ba du ba ba, Isaiah 53.6. But Zechariah doesn't get a rap like Isaiah does for what he wrote, but it's the same message. It's God who strikes the shepherd, not because he deserved it. He didn't deserve it. He would strike him because the shepherd was assuming the responsibility for the wrongdoing of others, for the sin of others, for you and for me. And that brings us then thirdly to the gospel according to Zechariah. Last week I mentioned that in the gospel accounts of Jesus' last week, These last six chapters of Zechariah are quoted more often than any other comparable part of the Old Testament. That's why they deserve our attention. So so that when we turn to the Gospels, and indeed the entire New Testament, Zechariah is this really helpful lens through which to understand what Jesus came to do for us. Why Easter is important. So hold on to your Easter bonnets as we take a whistle-stop tour through parts of the New Testament to see how the gospel according to Zechariah pans out. And I want to begin not in in the actual gospels, but in the next book, Acts chapter 4, because here we see the disciples who are praying at the time, And in their prayer, they're reflecting back on what happened to Jesus as they pray. And here's what they say. This is Acts chapter 4, 24 to 28. Sovereign Lord, they pray, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So notice the disciples begin their prayer exactly the same place that Zechariah 12 begins, with reference to God as the creator. And then they quote from a psalm, Psalm 2 which speaks of kings and nations, essentially at war against the Lord and his anointed, and then they see the fulfillment of that psalm, they say, in this city, in Jerusalem, with Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered against your holy servant Jesus. When was Zachariah's day when the nations and the people of Israel gathered against Jesus? God's purposes for the disciples, it was the day on which God's holy servant Jesus, the Messiah, was pierced. The death of Jesus was the day of salvation for God's people and the day of judgment for God's enemies. And that that was what was being predicted by the battle scene in Zechariah 12 is supported by the fact that the apostle John tells us that when a Roman soldier's spear pierced the side of, of Jesus while he hung on the cross on that day, John nineteen thirty six 36 to 37, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, they will look on him whom they had pierced. John's quoting here from Zechariah twelve ten, the verse that said the Lord God Yahweh would be pierced and he applies it to Jesus. In other words, God would become incarnate, God would take on human flesh in the person of his son Jesus Christ so that he might be pierced for our transgressions. God was pierced for our sins so that we need never be. The gospel according to Zechariah. But that's not all. At our Maundy Thursday service a few days ago, Jeremy was taking us through part of Mark chapter 14, Jesus' celebration of the Lord's Supper with his disciples at the time of Passover. Right after that incident, the passage that that Jeremy was preaching on, here's what we read, Mark 14, 26 to 27. And when they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knew what Zechariah's prophecy was pointing to. He knew that the striking of the shepherd applied to him and what would happen to him on the cross as the Messiah assumed the responsibility for the sin of others. And on that day of striking... Jesus understood from Zachariah that the Messiah would be completely alone, betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, abandoned by the other disciples and his followers, completely alone. I have three favorite French theologians, John Calvin, Roger Nicole, Henri Blachet. I never got to hear Calvin speak, which shouldn't surprise you since he lived in the 15th, 16th century. Nor did I get to hear Roger Nicole ever speak. He died in 2010. But I did get to hear Henri Blachet the year I was studying in Paris. Indeed, I still have the, the tape of that talk, although I'd probably need J.R. Reynal's help to understand it at this point with my French. But one of the things that Henri Blachet helped me grasp was the deep, deep significance of Jesus' aloneness at his death. And to see what Blachet taught me, I want you to think of half a bow tie like the one on the screen. Blasier pointed out that as the history of salvation proceeded in the Old Testament, the scope of God's redemptive dealings with humanity seems to grow narrower and narrower, like, like one side of a bow tie. So God starts essentially with the whole human race, first of all at the time of Adam and Eve, and then again after the flood. But then one particular line of the human race is chosen. God makes his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. However, he doesn't make it with all of Abraham's descendants. He makes it with Isaac, and his line is chosen. But even amongst Isaac's children, only one, Jacob, not Esau, is in the chosen line. But then it just continues to get narrower and narrower through the Old Testament. The prophets make it clear that not everyone who descends from Jacob is Truly Israel. Only a remnant will inherit the promise made to Abraham. And as you continue through the Old Testament, you're, you're just looking for the remnant. It just keeps getting smaller and smaller that Israel ends up in exile in Babylon. So that through the prophets, we read of the remnant dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And then we come to the Gospels and we find that what's left of the remnant, the remnant sheep, they scatter. They fall away. And in the end, there's only one person left. A remnant of one. Only one true Israelite. And it's the shepherd. He's the knot of the bow tie. Everything has come down to him. But now the shepherd has been fatally struck. He's been pierced. It's a disaster. Israel's hopes are in tatters or so it seemed because listen to what Jesus told his disciples right after he quotes from Zechariah Mark 14, 27 to 28 you will all fall away for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered but after I am raised up I will go before you to Galilee some of you have been wondering for the last 15 minutes are we ever going to get to the resurrection this morning here's here's your moment Jesus knew that his death was not the end. He knew that having been struck as the shepherd, he was going to rise from the dead. But having, have, even having known that, can you imagine what that Easter Sunday morning must have been like for Jesus? I mean, it's hard to know exactly how it happened. Sometime early on Sunday morning, maybe 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5.23 a.m., sometime, what had been a corpse experiences this triumphant twitch or twinkle in the body which leads to some sort of scrunch as Jesus's body comes to life again and the angels move the stone sealing the entrance of the tomb and either by some act of finesse or miracle or combination of the two Jesus gets up out of his grave clothes and stands up on his feet to test his resurrection body and then begins to walk out into the light. Can you imagine what must have been going through his mind at that moment? It can't have been shock or surprise because he knew it was going to happen. But I just kind of picture a smile coming over his face and the words, thank you, Father, praise you, Father, bless you, Father. Because you see, as a result of the resurrection, the story of salvation isn't half a bow tie, it's a whole bow tie. Because of Jesus' the line starts spreading out again and getting further and further apart because now the promise is to all who find salvation through the judgment of the stricken shepherd. Our salvation is because someone else was judged. Salvation through judgment. But it was Jesus who was judged so that now we can be forgiven and the people of God. So that now the true Israel is now all who find their salvation, both Jew and Gentile, in the crucified but risen Jesus. And as more and more people put their faith in him, maybe even today someone here puts their faith in him. The lines just keep getting wider and wider. It keeps expanding. It keeps growing. That's the beautiful geometry of all of God's plan. But how does someone become part of the the new people of God? Well, Zechariah says there are two parts to the answer to that question. First, there is cleansing from sin. Zechariah 13, verse one. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. It's this beautiful image of a ever-flowing stream of fresh, clean water. It's a fountain that seems to have been stopped up but now it's been unstopped, it's been cleared, it's been opened, and now it it never runs out, and it never gets dirty, and it always cleanses fully, and it always will cleanse more. And that's good news, because no matter how bad you think you've been in your life, and no matter what the weight of shame and guilt you might still carry around for something that happened maybe weeks, months ago, but maybe even years or decades ago, Because the shepherd was struck in our place and he rose again, there is a never-failing, ever-flowing, inexhaustible fountain of cleansing and forgiveness for all who come to him. Jesus' death on the cross paid every last ounce for every sin for those who trust in him, and his resurrection was the confirmation that the payment was completely valid. But there's a second part. God does the cleansing through Jesus, but to benefit from the cleansing, he calls on us to repent and to turn to him. Look at chapter 12, verse 10, one more time. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The way our translation words it, it sounds like what's being poured out by God here is a a spirit of grace and supplication like a certain disposition or a state of mind, but it's more likely, I think, that God here is actually speaking about his spirit, capital S. The prophets Isaiah and Joel and Ezekiel all had spoken of a day when God would pour out his spirit on his people, and he had associated that with the dawning of a new age, a new creation, when everything that God had promised would be fulfilled. Well, Zachariah here wants to get on, in on this. This is a good thing to get in on. He wants to get in on the good news. So for him, the dawning of the day is tied to the pouring out of the Spirit. But look at what the specific effect of what that pouring out will be. God will impart his unmerited grace and turn the hearts of his recipients to mourning and to weeping. Great mourning and weeping, which is a picture of repentance. And why will they repent? Because they have looked on the one they have pierced And it dawns on them what they have done. You see, the Spirit produces new insights in our life. We start to see God and understand God in a new way and our past attitudes and actions in a a new way. And we realize how grievously we've sinned against God, what we've done to Him. Which is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. God pours out His Spirit on many people gathered in Jerusalem. And Peter, preaching to the crowd that day, said this, Acts 2, 23 to 24, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus, you crucified and killed, killed by his own people, as Zechariah had said would happen. And what was the reaction of the people? Acts 237 to 38, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And it's the same call issued to anyone here who hasn't trusted in the pierced Messiah. What shall I do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, you might say, well, that makes sense back in Acts chapter 2. I mean, those people were around at the time of Jesus' death. It makes sense that they could have been complicit in his execution, but I wasn't there. Why would I need to repent? I'll tell you why. Because of the coming day, because of the on that day that Zechariah keeps repeating, I've really been making the argument that the New Testament writers largely saw that day fulfilled in the death of Jesus. But from the perspective of the entire New Testament, Zechariah's day is actually two days. Or perhaps even more precisely, it's a period of time bookended by those two days. And in that sense, we're living in the day now. Because what Zechariah predicts didn't all happen. At Jesus' first coming, much of what he prophesies, particularly in chapter 14, still lies ahead on another day, the day when Jesus will come a second time and when, as I highlighted at the beginning of the sermon from chapter 14, verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. The Lord will be one and his name one. But the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the apostle John anticipates that day. Listen to how he opens with his greeting in Revelation 1, verses 5 to 7. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Here in his greeting, John returns us to these dual themes of salvation and judgment, and he references two groups. First consists of those Zachariah had referred to as prisoners of hope. Their hope has been at least partially fulfilled as Jesus has freed them from their sins through his death and brought them into into his kingdom, but there's a second group here, isn't there? On that day, Jesus will come with the clouds and every single one of us will see him. Every single one of us here will see him. And then John alludes one more time back to Zechariah 12 and tells us that number will include those who pierce Jesus. But on this this particular day, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. But you see that wailing isn't the morning of repentance that led to salvation as it was in Zechariah. It's the wailing of seeing that Jesus is returning, is returning as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and realizing that at that point that it's too late to turn to him. It's the wailing of those who realize that they really are on the wrong side of history. It's the wailing of those who know that the only verdict that lies ahead for them is not salvation, but judgment. And if that seems like a definite downer to finish this message with, here's the good news. That day hasn't arrived yet. Today is still a day of salvation. And the Apostle Peter's answer is still the same to those of us who would ask the question, what shall we do? What do I do to get on the right side of history for that day when Jesus returns? And Peter's answer is the same: Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Zechariah announced this Jesus as as the coming King for you, for the Good Shepherd for you, for the the pierced Messiah, for you, so repent and believe in him because it's through him that the God of creation is going to usher in this beautiful, glorious, magnificent new creation for all who have repented and put their trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we might feel prisoners of one thing or many things in our lives, you have made us as your followers to be prisoners of hope because we know of what lies ahead. We know what Jesus has done for us already in the past, and we know that he's coming again to fulfill all things, consummate all things, make all things perfect. But I pray for any of us, Lord, who haven't worked through these things in our minds, because there's nothing more important for us to work out and to know what to do. And so, Lord, let us heed the words of that great prophet, Zachariah, and let us see how it it applies in our own personal lives. And Lord, we pray that you would hound us until we've come to the, the decision that needs to be made of trusting in you, knowing that you came as our king, you came as our good shepherd, You came as our King who was pierced in our place so that we could know fullness of life and we could know hope. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.